0: Welcome to Pipeline Conversations, a machine learning podcast by ZenML. This week, I spoke with Mohan Mahadevan, a senior VP at Onfido, a machine learning powered identity verification platform. He has previously worked at Amazon, heading up a computer vision team working on robotics applications, as well as for many years at KLA, a leading semiconductor hardware company. He holds a doctorate in theoretical physics from Colorado State University. Mohan had mentioned that he thought it might be interesting to discuss neurosymbolic AI and the implications of a shift towards that as a core paradigm for production AI systems. In particular, in this podcast, we discuss the practical consequences of such a shift, both in terms of team composition as well as infrastructure requirements. I really enjoyed this discussion, and I hope you do too. <laughs>
1: So my name is uh, Mohan Mahadevan and I run the applied science team at Onfido right now. Onfido is a digital identity verification company so it's a digital onboarding company it allows consumers to access products and services online by proving who they are. It could be anything from opening a bank account to opening a crypto buying cryptocurrency online to renting a car to a whole host of services and products that you can access online. And so at Onfido, this is done through validating your document and your face. So a garment issued ID, you take a picture or a video of a garment issued ID and a picture or a video of your face. And then behind the scenes, we do a few things. One of them is we match the biometrics. That means we match the face in the video or the selfie to that in the document. We extract the data from the document, like your name, date of birth, your address, et cetera. And then we do fraud detection on the document to ensure that it hasn't been tampered with in any way. And uh, this is a very challenging problem because we have to scale to, think of over 10,000 documents across the globe. So there could be Tanzania, Passport, 27... Document
0: types, you mean?
1: Yeah, yeah. 10,000 document types. And you have to know the details of every document type in order to know that it hasn't been tampered with. And -hmm. so it's a very challenging scale problem. Mm -hmm. And another aspect of this is doing biometric anti-spoofing, so someone is not pretending to be someone else by either grabbing a picture of Facebook or from the web or putting on a mask, theatrical makeup, a whole nine yards you aren't trying to spoof and be someone else. Mm -hmm. And then in addition, all of this is wrapped up through a risk engine or a decision engine Wherein we add a whole bunch of other signals like, uh, you know, your IP address, your, your, uh, where are you accessing from? Is there something suspicious about, you know, the behavioral biometrics or whatever, right? So a whole host of things slowly get added on to create a complete digital identity verification product. Mm -hmm. And so uh, machine learning is, of course, at the heart of it. And I've been doing this for about three years now at Onfido and absolutely enjoyed it. A host of challenging problems for us to solve. And uh, also deploy these at scale uh, for our global customers. So that's at Onfido. I've been there for about three years. Prior to that, I was running um, perception control uh, systems for robotics at Amazon in Seattle, where we were deploying robotic applications in the warehouses to automate things, uh, uh, to automate tasks in the warehouses. They could be stowing, packing, uh, moving, etc. And prior to that, I spent a long time in the semiconductor industry. Uh, worked in a company called uh, KLA, and uh, this most people haven't heard of this company, but uh, uh, because it's in the semiconductor capital equipment space, which is a B two B space. But that uh, that world, I was there for over eighteen years, and I saw Moore's law go from uh, three hundred and fifty nanometers or so when I was started there to about five nanometers in uh, research and seven nanometers in pilot lines when I left 18 years later. And so uh, the, there we built inspection and metrology equipment for the chip makers. So as you're building the chip, you need to ensure that every step in the chip was built correctly. There weren't any problems that happened. And so we'd have to physically image the wafer and detect problems, anomalies, defects, uh, variations in uh, in 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 process so that uh, our customers could then take preventive actions and corrective actions before they took the chip all the way and then found out something was broken at the very end so that was a very challenging and exciting uh, time uh, which any day I could come into work and have four to five to ten really hard problems to work on and it was really exciting and challenging to work there so In a nutshell, that's my background. In a previous lifetime, I also have a PhD in theoretical physics, Um, but... I think the physics community would probably not call me a physicist anymore. <laughs>
0: because well, presumably, you've brought some of the skills from that work into uh, your new life.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I uh, recently met up with my advisor, actually, and uh, I was telling him that there were so many things I learned from him during the course of my PhD that I still use every day. Uh, and so very true. Very good point, Alex.
0: Are there any ways where you could see there would be a lot of ways to bring things back to theoretical physics somehow from from your current work that maybe aren't part of the way that that theoretical physics gets done?
1: Yeah, so I think machine learning in general has already moved into physics in in a big way, both in experimental and theoretical physics. So DeepMind is uh, using machine learning to detect new materials. They are uh, detecting uh, being able to run simulations uh, through machine learning that would take a very, very long time to run uh, you know, classically with the old methods, traditional methods. So there's, there's a host of areas where machine learning is impacting physics in a big way. This includes particle physics, uh, um, cosmology, a whole set of uh, areas within physics. But I'll tell you uh, an area uh, where it's very practical. So even in the semiconductor area, you know, there's, uh, there are uh, lithography simulations where you send light through the mask and then it it uh, puts a pattern on the wafer. It develops a pattern on the wafer. And in order to do that simulation classically, it would take a long time. But machine learning is bringing amazing uh, speed ups and accuracy to those simulations uh, in order to search the space of parameters. Um, And so machine learning is already deeply in physics in many ways, Um, uh, yeah. But I'm personally not involved in that right now, Mm -hmm. but yeah, Mm -hmm. perhaps in the future.
0: And perhaps as a bridge to, I guess, what we wanted to to spend the bulk of our time talking about today, I'm thinking, I forget the exact name of it. In the case of DeepMind's AlphaFold, Maybe you could take a, a purely no assumptions taken about how to predict this and you just work from the data and you, you make a classic neural network to try to, to make those connections. And then maybe there's another approach which really takes a lot of the stuff that we already know about the physical and biological universe. I don't know whether you want to think about this as a rules-based approach, but there's some kind of knowledge graph or something about you know we always know that molecules behave in this or that way. And as far as I understand it, you know, there's obviously traditionally been different camps. So you, you yeah. mentioned that you wanted to talk about neurosymbolic AI. Could you maybe talk a bit about how these things relate to each other?
1: Yeah, yeah, certainly, certainly. So I think uh, so. Maybe I'll just recast your question a little bit uh, mm-hmm. uh, in 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 the terminology that I'm familiar with. So I'll call I'll call one area sort of end-to-end learning where you just drop in the data, give it a objective function, and let the neural network learn the function approximation to transform, go from, you know, data to insight, result, molecule structure, what have you. And then there's the other approach, which is let's take all the priors and information uh, that we have and build these complex rules. And then and then within those rules, we'll have to do all kinds of searches um, to see within the parameters to see if there is a new molecule or if there's something else going on uh, or, or uh build a system that can now act intelligently in the world, right? So symbolic, it's called GoFi, good old-fashioned AI, or symbolic AI. And uh, I think both of them have their advantages and disadvantages. Um, And so I would say that uh, there are... So if you look at the end-to-end learning, there are lots of advantages, lots of advantages, because you don't have to... um, put in a lot of uh, old knowledge in there. You uh, It takes time to build that in. It takes a lot of heuristics to build that in. And suddenly you're uh, in a place where it just takes an immensely long amount of time to make something happen. And it you may not be able to make it happen because you cannot encode all the world information in rules, right?
0: Like That's for a, yeah. computer vision problems. Yeah, computer vision
1: problems. or Yeah. So the neural networks, what they allow you to do is they allow you to discover these things, discover these correlations and and discover them from data directly without having to have to hand engineer and symbolify uh, everything within the network. Mm -hmm. Now, this is amazing because uh, I'll give you (laughs) you a practical example. Mm -hmm. If if you want to solve a business problem, in an afternoon, somebody can pull data from a data repository, uh, pull a model from an online repository and train a model and by by late afternoon, we can have results. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's how quick some of these solutions can be, these end-to-end learning, and especially with the great democratization of machine learning that has happened you know, with people open sourcing their models and, and data sets and things like that. But on the other hand, uh, there is a downside. This is not without cost. Uh, the downside is that uh, there is no sort of what I'll call uh, systematic generalization There is, if you really want to make this production grade and high performance, you need lots and lots of data before your models can converge to that really good solution. Uh, These neural networks can have issues with adversarial perturbations, where uh, a small change of a few pixels in the data can cause the answer to be completely wrong. And there are lots of examples you can see, lots of really stunning examples, and this there's a paper in 2014 uh, from Google that shows that by changing ever uh, a small number of pixels in the right way, you can, you can take things like a school bus, which was correctly classified as a school bus, now is called an ostrich, <laughs> or, or a building is right. called an ostrich. So they moved six completely different things to be called ostriches now, mm-hmm. and with high confidence as well. And, yep. so, uh, and then there is another thing, which is what I'll call uh, lack of transfer learning. Okay. So, which means if you've learned to do one task, you're good at that task and and you can't take that knowledge very easily to another task. So, so these end-to-end learning systems have a lot of advantages in that you can go quickly to a solution. You can let the function approximation learn the function rather than have to handcraft engineer, hand engineer features and things like that. But again, there are some downsides. And on the other side, The symbolic AI gives you all the explainability and the transfer and all of that very well. But there is a downside because you can't encode the world knowledge in rules. And it's impossible. And every time something changes, you can't change the entire system, right? And so there's a downside on that. And so if you look at this, as you mentioned, neurosymbolic AI systems, this field attempts to bring the best of both worlds and thereby take the benefits of the neural network where you don't have to handcraft and hand engineer uh, things and and uh, lose the ability to transfer or be data efficient uh, or, or explain, and and on the other hand, uh, it brings the value of neural networks in that it can deal with noise. It can it can build the functions where it is impossible to symbolify and and create this you know encode the world's knowledge and rules, and so it's able to bring the best of both worlds uh, in such a way that you can build practical machine learning and based solutions to real world problems.
0: And I guess there's a spectrum of kind of hard battle tested and kind of purely speculative research ideas. Where is this right now?
1: Yeah. So if you look at the practitioners, uh, uh, where if you look at, if you look at, let's say some of the products that actually work in the real world. Okay. So, uh, Google Search is a product that works in the real world. Um, I suggest that Alexa uh, and Google Voice and Siri and these these products work in the real world. And uh, so these are sort of public facing products. And then there are B2B products, lots of B2B products, all of which actually use Neurosymbolic AI without calling it that. Mm -hmm. So a lot of these high performance products that have to work in the real world, are already using neurosymbolic AI. They don't call them that. So I'll give you an example. In the semiconductor world, when uh, we were building these inspection systems to detect defects and do them at sub-resolution, which means a defect is smaller than a pixel, but Mm -hmm. it leaves a certain amount of signal and you need to be able to detect that with a low error rate, with a low false positive rate. So we we were using neurosymbolic AI systems uh, without ever calling it that. Mm -hmm. And the way it would work there is uh, you can imagine that the context of where a certain structures were in the semiconductor wafers were important. And so if you can focus on that with the rich priors of knowing where the context is, then you bring that rule. It's almost like a rule of where that prior was, where those structures were. And so you could focus uh, focus differentially in the entire image uh, and to some extent, this is also attention. What attention or the transformer networks uh, attempt to do—they like to focus on the areas that are more interesting. Uh, except that in the transformers, they want to learn where to focus, and in neurosymbolic AI, you can tell the system where to focus, and so you get the most—you get this data efficiency because you can bring this prior, and and by mapping and aligning the prior into the incoming image, you know where to focus on instead of having the transformer networks actually tell you where to focus on. So again, this is about practicality. The academia and the folks who build the transformer architectures are trying to solve a much bigger problem. But in real life, you don't want to boil the oceans. If you have to build a problem to solve a business ca- a problem in real world, you just have to solve that specific thing. And so you don't have to uh, you know, build general AI to solve that. But if you are very Careful about how you build these neurosymbolic AI systems. You can get to a solution much faster that offers these advantages of transferability, uh, explainability, bias mitigation, and and uh, and uh, data efficiency.
0: So it seems like, from the way you're saying it, uh, and at least that meshes with with my experience of having started to read about it. A lot of people have either been applying it or been bringing it in as part of their their pipelines or their systems as a kind of a natural extension of what they have because it helps suit their problems. Is that the right way of thinking about it?
1: That's, that's the, the, the real world scrappy way of how things are moving. Yeah. Okay.
0: Okay. And are there specific problems that this approach is kind of born to solve? Mm -hmm. Is, Is it better in certain areas versus others?
1: Yeah. So I think that that's, that's a great question. And, and the way we can think about it as uh, so. It even in end-to-end learning systems, we always like to use priors, which means if you have any prior information that you can inject into the network, then the networks learn very data efficiently, but also learn what you want them to learn, as opposed to trying to figure out function approximations blindly. They it's a guided. Uh, function uh, approximation, and what that does
0: as, is, yeah. as features, do you mean?
1: It could be features. It could be uh, meta variables uh, that you know. It could be um, it could be an additional pre-processed image. I'll give you an example. Supposing you want uh, you want the network to learn frequency uh, variations. Okay, that means that uh, when when uh, I'll take the example of our document fraud detection. So what happens is uh, a good fraudster might download an, a template of a document, might make edits that are very, very good with Photoshop or whatever, and then print out the document yep. on a very good printer, right? And that seems like, wow, that would be very hard for a human to detect. But what happens is, the Garmin printer that printed that document leaves a certain set of frequencies that the human eye can't necessarily see, okay? And this printer now left a different set of frequencies in, the, in this document. So what you do is, instead of just injecting the the good data and some sampled uh, supervised fraud data and ask the network to learn, what you do is you compute the frequency in certain areas of the incoming data and feed that as an additional channel. So you can even send in a frequency image. So now the network is very efficiently learning to use frequency data to detect fraud. And similarly, you can send in another channel. You can send in pre-processed channels. You can send in features, metadata, you know those kinds of things. Okay. So, yeah. So, uh, so using the priors is is just a good thing, even in end-to-end learning systems. And what neurosymbolic AI does is it tries to bring in the priors very effectively. So you don't force a network to do a lot of learning, which means that you protect yourself from having to give it a lot of data to so that it can learn all of these these these, uh, functions that it needs to learn to do the job properly. You make it focus on the most difficult parts of it, the parts that you can't hand engineer, the parts that are are tricky. And then, and so if you feed those in uh, and if you feed in the prize you have and let the neural networks do what they're very good at, which is learning these functions when it is very hard to specify them, when it is very hard to uh, encode the world priors in, in these symbolic rules, then you get the best of both worlds. Now I'll give you a practical example. So we, in our identity verification, let's take document fraud detection again. We have customers from all over the world are sending us images taken on every kind of mobile device with every kind of sensor in every kind of lighting conditions and focus drifts and focus conditions. And so as our data corpus builds it is much more effective to ask a neural network to deal with that noise because you don't have to build symbolic rules to deal with that noise. You let the neural network learn the spread of the noise, the noise distributions, and so it can naturally deal with that. So here's an example where something is hard to encode and as long as you get a good data corpus, let the neural networks do an amazing job. Another example would be, it's a data-dependent thing. If you have a lot of data, neural networks are amazing, okay? And we've seen this time and time and time again. So if you've got lots of data, don't worry about a lot of symbolic stuff, right? Uh, Build in priors so that you get generalization and explainability to some extent, but use the neural networks powerfully. So it's almost like there's no one rule, Right. You have to take your problem and know whether you want to go to the left bookend with neural networks or to the right bookend with symbolic rules. And where do you sit in that depends on the problem you're solving.
0: Mm-hmm. Are there any trade-offs we're making when we take this approach or. Yeah, I'm just wondering what's being left behind by merging these together.
1: Yeah, so. That's that's a good question. So let's look at this in a few ways, and I'll t- talk of both the advantages and the trade-offs. I talked of some of the advantages before, uh, but before we go to trade-offs, let me add one more advantage. Okay, sure. uh, so there's a there's a host of AI governance regulations that is that are coming and these are going to be really challenging okay so we've been sort of working in the wild west now anything mm-hmm. flies build any network with any data and, and it flies and, and, and it's all good yeah. right um, now uh, the the but with this ai regulations <clears throat> apart from you know data uh, use and intent and minimization like in, we have in gdpr and apart from things like ethics and security we have uh we have bias to deal with mm-hmm. okay we have uh how shall I say it's not enough to build a model and deploy it you have to monitor it and update it constantly mm-hmm. and uh, and you have to monitor bias now so uh, mm-hmm. these regulations are now going to say how are you monitoring bias? how are you monitoring uh, how are you correcting for bias? how can you prove that you corrected for bias when you detected it and so there are there are it, the AI governance is asking. For the AI based, ML based systems to be responsive now, to understand where their weaknesses are and be responsive. And these end to end, throw a large amount of data into the solution just cannot offer that, right? And so it's almost as if there is going to be some pressure uh, to use these neurosymbolic AI systems to satisfy the needs of AI governance. So with that context, now I'll go to the other side, which is what are the downsides? What are, the, what are the, so, so the downsides are uh, it takes time to engineer these. As I said, you have to understand where in the bookend you want to be to solve your problem. That means you're depending on the expertise of <clears throat> the team you have, right? How do they make decisions on whether to use neural networks here or symbolic AI? So we've just made the, the product building um more complicated on the science side now, right? Because there are a lot of these, it's not a hyperparameter, it's not a, it's not a system that you can just feed in like machine learning systems typically are fed in data and an objective function. So it requires a, it requires that and if that intelligence and that human intelligence and that human effort that has to go in. So that's that's expensive. It takes time, it takes resources, and humans can get it wrong. Mm-hmm. So you'll never know whether you've built that perfect system. Uh, in any case, you can't guarantee that. But now there is a stronger dependence on you know the human factor, so to speak. Mm-hmm. That's one downside. Actually, before I bring this other downside, let me set a bigger context. So mm-hmm. if you look at what is called deep learning system two or system two, uh, you know from Daniel Kahneman or you know how Joshua Benjo and, and folks talk about it. And if you talk of neurosymbolic AI systems, uh, while they look like they are two different things, they're really just converging towards one thing. So where we are headed to in the future is uh, these these deep learning uh, system two attention based approaches is nothing but learning the symbolism without having these explicit need to encode symbolism. Okay, so in a way, uh, that's the context of where we are headed now we are far away from that to be honest i'd say we are maybe three four five years before they're practical in in real world applications but and so until then we have no choice but to encode these rules in and and so uh, the reason i bring this context is there are people who are trained in different schools of thought okay so as you hire these teams People come with strong biases about what is the right way to solve a problem. And it's very hard to find people who are yet trained in neurosymbolic AI ways. So if you want to build these teams to take care of the human intellect problem, hiring challenges are there Mm -hmm. in order to hire the right people who can come in and make this happen. So the people who are very strongly attached to this, you know, end-to-end learning, attention based consciousness, Uh, system two is going to take us there. And that's what we need to do. Don't do this encoding of uh, priors and information strongly uh, as neurosymbolic AI systems. So that's the second problem, which is actually finding the right talent pool to be able to solve these. Um, But in the first problem, I've actually, I kind of uh, put two things together there. Okay, I said, understanding the bookend and the uh, that, that there are several challenges there. Uh, it's not just the time it takes to build a system, but it is also about how you break the system and how you build a roadmap. Because you may start out when you have very little data with high symbolism. And as you get more and more data, you may become more neural network uh, yep. based. And so it's not a static thing that I built the system and I deployed it and I'm done. It's actually a... It's almost like a ramp, you know, that you start with this and then you get there. So understanding that and engineering that is hard. Mm
0: -hmm. When I think of encoding hard data in symbolic systems and so on, I definitely have my old historian's hat on and so on. And I can see a lot of risks in that. And obviously, you know, knowledge expands and changes and the risk of bias and issues with that, I think are, I imagine would be quite high
1: yes uh, indeed um, so it's a catch 22 so y- y- you can actually take care of bias by b- designing the right neurosymbolic ai systems but right. then when you bring in the human uh, in, in such a strong way in there you can introduce biases as well so it's it's that's where the human element and the uncertainty makes things harder now if you look at uh, if you look at uh, in academia, there are at least, uh, I'd say, two to three approaches uh, from different groups, and in fact, more, I'm sure of. Uh. So if you look, IBM and MIT have a big program on neurosymbolic AI systems, and, and the way they approach it is, 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 uh, is one way. Um, mm-hmm. And then there are, uh, from CMU and from University of Washington, there are a couple of other, you know, what we call common sense reasoning that approach it in a slightly different way with tree-based LSTMs. Um, and where they are proving things out. And so as academia starting and Yoshua Bengio and folks, we know with the system to deep learning attention. So it, as all of these approaches are are starting to converge in their own ways, right. Uh, hopefully there'll be more frameworks that allow uh, that take this uncertainty out from, you know, introducing human biases when we build these symbolic systems and, and build take the expertise out, but in the meanwhile, I think it's hard to uh, hard to walk away from that, especially in the in the context of this AI governance regulations starting to come. Being uh, the ICO in the UK uh, is working on AI governance regulations for companies. The EU is, uh, in Brussels is working on a whole uh, framework on AI governance. The US just released SR 711 but then there are other uh, wins uh, that are coming as well. So I think in the short term, it'll be hard to walk away from that if you have to satisfy some of these regulations.
0: Mm-hmm. I'm curious, in a practical sense, for a data scientist working on a problem, I guess We've sort of started converging on a kind of a pattern for how to work, to apply neural networks to a particular problem and almost the different boxes you slot your pieces into in order to end up with a certain result. I'm curious how thinking neurosymbolically, like applying this, what does this change about your process? Right, right, right.
1: So let's break this down with one or two examples because it'll be easier to follow in that way. So... Uh, The simplest way of thinking about neurosymbolic AI in my mind is asking what priors you can build into your end-to-end learning systems. Mm -hmm. If you didn't have the data, how could you still get the network to learn what you wanted to learn as opposed to learning spurious function approximations, Mm -hmm. which are correlations that don't exist in real Mm -hmm. world, but they are fair conclusions that the network learns because of the limitations of data you have because of the incompleteness of the data set you have, right? And so ask yourselves, what priors can you inject uh, as opposed to just sending the data raw with with labels, okay? Uh, and so that, that would be the simplest thing. And, and keep asking yourself that constantly as you get uh, more results. Let's say you start with a very simple system. You build an end-to-end system. You have some labels. You, you define the problem as a classification problem. Let's take the document fraud example. Okay, so we define it initially. I've got a bunch of fraud data of, let's say, UK DLs. I got a bunch of genuine data as UK DLs. I have a convolutional neural network. And I say, let me classify the fraud from the genuine and use this network to do that job. And then I look at the errors it makes. And then I look to see what it didn't learn. And typically what we do is today we augment that data Oh, you made errors here. You didn't have enough data of this type or that type. Okay, I'll augment it and then I'll retrain it. And now I don't have errors. But as you start to look at those errors, ask yourself, uh, are the errors coming from some area of the document, for example? Maybe more errors are coming from the picture area. So then you might break this problem in a very simple way. You might say, let's separate the picture area and let's separate the document. Let's have two models. One that focuses on the picture area that where it can specifically look for issues with the, with the tampering of the picture area. And so you've now built a better system because now your picture area model is doing a single job, a simple job. You can use a smaller model, lesser data, learns more efficiently and is sensitive. And you've built your first neurosymbolic AI system because you bought in a very valuable prior.
0: You've semantically separate. Yeah, out exactly,
1: the... exactly. So it doesn't have to be something very complicated. You know, it, uh, you don't have to think of neurosymbolic AI systems as something very, very complicated. But you're building right. in intelligent priors in the in the data, so that in the in the input channels, so that you're either you have multiple networks, which is now part of the bigger system that generates the the, the answer whether a document was fraud or not, um, and so you can start very simply from there. Mm-hmm.
0: In terms of the, the kind of the, the hardware or the infrastructure requirements of this, what my mind immediately goes to thinking of knowledge graphs, database, and so on as the, the the pairing here. Do even if we assume that it doesn't necessarily change so much to your process, does it change things to the infrastructure?
1: Yeah, so there are two. There are a few aspects here. Uh, you know, if you look at the infrastructure, so let's let's take uh, training, deployment, and monitoring. So let's like break it up into three different Mm -hmm. parts. So for the training, now uh, the the training infrastructure uh, is a little bit of a you know today. If you look at the standard machine learning solutions, they're pipelines anyway. There's you know there's a pre-processing step, there's a prep step, there's a model, there's another model, there's you know so there's already a pipeline. So you can think of this as uh, you can think of this as uh, a little bit more complexity in that pipeline. So it, in that aspect, not a whole lot changes. However, however, as these folks, uh, as the data scientists, as the machine learning scientists uh, build in more priors and interesting, uh, uh, interesting uh, symbol knowledge into the neural network, into the mm-hmm. pipeline, they need to be able to configure this and change this very quickly mm-hmm. so one of the infrastructure needs was you think of a pipeline as a static thing mm-hmm. now you want to think about it as a very dynamic thing and so mm-hmm. what do you do to make that super dynamic so these folks can change that you know if necessary on a on a you know every two days right mm-hmm. they discover something new they say oh don't fight that problem this way let's just drop a symbol train a network and and suddenly this this thing is you know growing and adapting and changing dynamically so the the there there has to be uh, what i'll call a level of configurability that doesn't require ml engineers to be involved so that the ml scientists can not only build these and test these and and so the number of iterations I think you can expect that to jump up. So you need to build the infrastructure in such a way that that, the number of iterations jumps up dramatically. Uh, um, The deployment, again, uh, if you think of uh, the cloud deployments, which are the most popular deployments, if you've got a very complex pipeline, uh, suddenly you've got latency issues, you've got uh, how you use your compute, uh, you know, do you use a GPU-based compute or a CPU-based compute? Because some of these symbolic algorithms are very good on CPUs, mm-hmm. and you can't port them on GPUs. So how do you make how do you balance compute out so that you don't lose latency as you build as you deploy these applications? So the inference pipelines uh, will most likely require um, flexibility, but also some. Um, some engineering in terms of uh, being able to use the hardware effectively. So mm-hmm. CPU, GPU, and latency uh, are are at least the minimal requirements there. And second, imagine if I now have um, instead of having one large model, okay, I have fifty small models. Mm-hmm. Uh, suddenly, it could even there could even be a memory problem, right? And so inference pipelines will be challenged as more folks start to build these these neurosymbolic AI systems and deploy them. The last is in the monitor and the correction, right? Mm -hmm. So you have to monitor and then you have to correct when uh, when drifts occur. Uh, And that correct step is actually a tricky one. So monitor is a little bit easier, but now you're not monitoring one high-level performance. You can monitor performance of 10 models below it So you can go change that single thing. And so this is the advantage and the disadvantage. The advantage is now you know where to go fix things because it's explainable and it's uh, interpretable. Um, But it is hard to, uh, on the infrastructure, because now you have to monitor 10X, you know, in terms of models that have drifted and things. So Mm -hmm. more automated and intelligent monitoring would be required uh, for, for these systems and, The correction is more interesting. So correction is multifold. Correction is you get some failures in some area. Now, if you add more symbols and move to the right where you're going towards more of the symbolic AI, then suddenly you've changed the pipeline. And so in the previous world, what would happen is we'd augment the data and update the model. Things didn't change a whole lot. You just updated that one model in the pipeline and deployed it. Now, all of a sudden, you've changed the pipeline. And if you've changed the pipeline, now you have to, again, worry about how this fits in your memory and the latency and all of that. So so that could be uh, that... If it goes down that direction where people are changing things frequently, improving performance, fixing problems, then you're looking at uh, at more complexity in, in the monitor correction, retrain, deploy phase. It makes it more complex.
0: It definitely feels like we have this whole field now it has a name mlops now where you know pe- people are are starting to worry about this problem it definitely feels like it's a little bit behind what people are trying to do practically like they're solving their problems and then they find they have to solve this other infrastructure problem along the way with this discussion about neurosymbolic ai in mind is it really just the the dynamism of this that is kind of the core thing that needs to be be addressed
1: so yeah how, how okay yeah so uh, i agree it's it's a dynamism but there are a few decisions there what wh- uh, um, how dynamic should it be how dynamic uh, does it uh, uh, how much does the dynamism change you know uh, the needs and unfortunately unfortunately this thing has to run in inference uh, you know in a fixed infrastructure right mm-hmm. and so uh, that dynamism has impacts both in the training phase and in the deployment phase. Um, And there is another aspect, which is, uh, you know, the holy grail, so to speak, is the ML scientists, when they train the model, they can deploy it without engineering overhead. Okay, that's the holy grail, right? Right. Uh, uh, Hardly ever happens. Um, uh, But uh, now with these systems, I think we don't have a choice. We have to make that work it has to be able to go without engineering overhead in a way. Uh, and so my vision is that we build a certain degree of configurability. Uh, and so the data scientists, they before they deploy, of course, they have to you know, do the functional testing, regression testing, uh, take care of the performance tests, and make sure that you don't have a catastrophic forgetting problem. So that has to be automated. So let's say the data scientist looks at some problem in, in production, comes up with a simple fix, which is obvious. And now all of a sudden you've got to automate that deployment piece in, in such a way that mm-hmm. uh, it doesn't have this engineering overhead. Otherwise we're otherwise this, this solution that could bring business value could just be stopped or delayed, right? Mm-hmm. The, the, this, this path would become so suboptimal that if it takes two months for every small cycle of, uh, uh, to, to go to deployment, mm-hmm. then I think this will die. Uh, right. The baby gets thrown out of the bathwater, basically. Mm-hmm.
0: Are there any human requirements around around this? You know, I'm thinking currently it seems there's a kind of a trend to to try to take domain experts and make them think about how to reason about and how to, to, to train models. And I guess maybe that's sort of a neurosymbolic system where you're bringing in someone with that domain expertise who's then able to work in a certain way. Does this require different configurations of how ML teams work, different specialisms, anything like
1: that? Yeah, yeah, that's a great question, Alex, really great question. So because I worry about this a lot, uh, and it's behind the scenes, right? Uh, People don't think about this. So this is my uh, current read on this. Um, It's not that neurosymbolic AI systems are going to cause that. It is Mm -hmm. that the AI governance regulations are going to cause that. So right now, if you look, uh, scientists are not necessarily trained, not necessarily trained on uh, ethics of AI, yep. on on bias, right? And so as these governance uh, regulations come to play, I think we'll have to bring new groups of people in to the ML development flow that would ensure that we are able to adhere to these regulations, both in the letter of the law and the spirit of it. The mm-hmm. spirit of it is almost more important because if you, personally, if you ask uh, each ML scientist, no one wants to be racist, okay? Mm-hmm. But I, I, how many how many models out there are racist today, right? And, and built by these very well-intentioned uh, ML scientists, right? And so my suspicion is we'll have to bring in that expertise either through training programs and experts that Work with um, uh, work with uh, the uh, ML scientists and 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 the engineers, um, and they might then influence how these neurosymbolic AI systems are built and monitored and corrected. So, yes, there is a human aspect. My 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 read is that it will come from outside. Um, I mean, the ML scientists are all. all anyway constantly evolving right or uh, whether it be LST, uh, rnns to lstms to transformers or whatever it's it's constantly evolving so that part i think is uh, we are used to it uh, we we'll, we'll, we'll constantly evolve whether it's neurosymbolic ai systems or, or or neural networks but there's this other element of of people that have to be involved in these companies as well mm-hmm.
0: And are there any other things which I guess need to happen for us to head further into this future? At least it seems like you're saying it's inevitable we're heading into this in any case. But I'm just thinking of a lot of people, fresh um, minds who are coming into this field right now. There's definitely an overemphasis on the kind of the the end-to-end Models and learning systems that you were talking about over the other. And there's not really much reward for exploring the other side. So, yeah. is that a risk?
1: Yeah, it is a risk, but it is no more of a risk than what existed before, honestly. So, okay. if you look at academia, and I'll tell you what I mean by this if you look at academia, mm-hmm. uh, the the PhD and the postdocs that we hire, right, they, they are they're working on, in terms of pushing um, you know, the limits of ML, right? Mm-hmm. Where is the frontier of ML? How do we push it further? And so their focus is entirely different, and rightly so. Rightly so. Mm-hmm. They should be focused on that. Mm-hmm. And, and when they come into industry to build real-world products, there's a huge uh, uh, training um, uh, and learning, on-the-job training and learning that has to happen anyway. Right, these folks, even who know how to build end-to-end learning systems, right. um, they don't have to worry with uh, the failure of the IID assumption. Okay, which is out-of-distribution detection. Uh, they don't worry about that because in the papers, you just need to take that data and and train till you can push the benchmark somewhat higher. New neural architecture, what have you? You know, so so that problem has always existed. This is uh, this is not making it any. Um, uh, any worse necessarily because the dynamics and the actual pragmatism of building real world uh, solutions based on ML is very different from uh, what students learn in academia. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, And it definitely seems to me like there's also a tooling gap somehow in particularly, I mean, we were talking about democratization earlier. There's definitely some kind of gulf in between, which if you could blend it maybe with tools, maybe with education, maybe with something that you could get further along towards that, that end goal. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Uh, Yeah. Uh, So if you look at the, current products that have neurosymbolic AI systems, they've all built internal Clue G tooling to make it work for them, right? Yeah. So here, I think your question is referring to generalized frameworks. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, yeah, there, there, is a, there is a need for it, but right now there isn't a single solution of how to do this, right? right? Even if you look at the way IBM approaches it, or if you look at the way the CMU group approaches it, or if you look at, the way the the, um, the University of Washington group approaches it. Just a few examples. There are many groups working on this. I don't want to shortchange anyone here. Mm-hmm. Um, they they all have different approaches, right? And so this is still very young and fresh in academia. And uh, mm-hmm. and and so I think we are not yet at a place where I would say that there's a framework. Even though there will be a claim of frameworks, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, yep. From each of these groups that yep. that definitely feel uh, passionate about the way they're going right. about it, but yep. but I don't think there is a. We are in a place where you a generalized framework uh, that works like TensorFlow or PyTorch mm-hmm. or whatever mm-hmm. is going to be the So this is still going to be kludgy for a while, okay. and yeah. uh, over time maybe it'll be mature enough for a generalized
0: framework to emerge. Mm-hmm. But do you see that as a necessity?
1: Eventually, I, I, I think I don't I won't call it a necessity because you can work through you know a, a mishmash of internal uh, tools and mechanisms, right. but I see it as an eventuality. Okay, right. Uh, as as these AI governance regulations force us to behave right. in, in in these in in what I'd call principled ways, uh-huh. uh, there is a there is eventually there should there will the frameworks will have to provide uh, ways of developing these products in a principled way
0: just to take it back to to kind of where we began is hardware any of a bottleneck in all of this we have this kind of cambrian explosion of tooling right now are we seeing similar kinds of new pathways and so on to help us deal with this
1: yeah yeah so uh so here i'm gonna <laughs> reflect my age a little bit so you, you you know this this hardware software generic versus specific it uh it it, it also goes it goes in cycles okay so, so i remember in in 1995 uh we had to process uh, i don't know three four hundred megapixels million pixels a second in real time and so we had to build custom hardware Yep. Then suddenly the CPU scaling happen, happened dramatically. You know, we play this game every six months. I have one point two gigahertz. Now we got one point eight gigahertz, two point two, you know, so on. And so, when that started to happen, uh, suddenly this custom hardware couldn't catch up. Mm-hmm. Okay, then then the CPU, GPUs. You know the story of the GPUs, and then. Now, if you look, every company has built their own hardware almost right whether it be Google or Amazon or, you know, uh, uh, and and so a lot of companies are building these custom hardware kits for machine learning, right, and also on the edge. So uh, it's specifically for these systems um, today we ignore the hardware question when it comes to developing. We just assume the cloud's going to have the latest and, and let the latest just evolve. It's going to continue to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, my suspicion, this is, again, my just my, my uh, prediction, so to speak. I could be wrong here. Is we've ignored latency so far in a big way for a lot of commercial applications, but latency will become more and more valuable because if something is faster, then people will like it more in terms of consumer experience. Now the big, now the Google searches, of course and Netflix. They worry about latency all the time. That's why they build their own hardware to some extent, right? Um, but even our, uh, you, you know, your uh, thousands of startups across the world at at some point they're going to start worrying about you know what what can latency offer in the cloud. So I see this go two ways. One way is. The cloud providers now start to have optimization teams that offer these different configurations for these systems that, that that again, make it transparent to the end user, to, to the ML scientists, not the end user, to the ML scientists. I think that's a better solution. Um, but before we get there, I suspect there will be another step where, um, where people will do some level of optimization, mm-hmm. you know? Um, so there are, again, companies that do, startups that do optimization, they do f- all the way from neural architecture search to um, to uh, pipeline optimizations. Mm-hmm. So, so there'll be some of this taking off, and then hopefully the cloud providers will start to provide these really configurable cloud offerings that can offer low latency for customers like uh, Onfido, right? Mm-hmm. We build all of these models and all of these things, and we want a super low latency and it shouldn't be on us. Like, why can't the cloud provider provide us, you know, CPU, right. GPU, you know? Yep. Yeah. So, yeah. But, but because today you can do super low latency, but it gets very expensive, mm-hmm. even on the cloud. So it, there's there's some room for optimization there.
0: And I guess still in this hardware space, since you did have this experience working in this kind of robotics area, like, I'm interested how that changes things, particularly from the perspective of a data scientist. Like, working with kind of real-world hardware, does that slow things down? Does that add certain constraints to how you work?
1: So, I'll simplify your question to provide so mm. an answer. So, it's let's call
0: question. it let's call you the
1: let's call it the edge compute question. Okay. Mm. So, how do you take these kinds of uh, you know more complexity in, in a way to, to down to the edge and and be able to deploy it on the edge? Uh, it's a good question, and, and honestly, I don't have an answer. I haven't thought of this, so it's a very good question. I'll think about this. <laughs> it's a good question. So uh, today, if you look traditionally on the edge, there are two approaches. One approach is um, make the model smaller till it works, okay, till you can fit it in the memory and uh, and the latency in the edge. Uh, or there are some clever tricks in the neural architecture search that people use to optimize uh. Um, I think there's a company from Israel called Desi.ai. I recently saw some of their work on that. Um, So that is the approach that is today, that's active today. Um, In the future, and if you look at how the edge compute themselves are going, if you look at Apple's chips or if you look at, uh, you know, Qualcomm, they're all bringing in GPU and CPU combinations. So you're getting, you know, both of these compute units, uh, uh, so, yeah, so so I think there is room for that to mature, but that maturity, the optimization maturity, almost happens after algorithmic maturity. Mm-hmm. So if your algorithms are mature and able to deliver the performance, then you go into, you know, optimization, computational optimization maturity. Otherwise, if you keep tweaking this and you spend all this time figuring out a neural architecture search, then, uh, you know, you're going to have to redo that process. And that's a very expensive process uh, um, to to deploy onto hardware. So ideally I would like the hardware to just be transparent to the ML scientists. So then they can just focus on making the algorithms and the models better and the hardware just takes care of it. Um, And, and maybe there is a, there's investments in optimization groups that take that solution and make it faster. So I guess I'm just, uh, I'm just riffing here. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I wonder if there are really different ways of thinking about it that, that, that we haven't even started to bring in, you know, you have federated learning just to take one kind of example of doing things quite differently somehow, which may play into this kind of edge device question.
1: Yeah, yeah, Um, it's a a very, very important one. I mean, differential privacy, which could drive federated learning and these AI governance regulations. Yeah, it's interesting. It's a very interesting world uh, how those things evolve. And there, I believe neurosymbolic AI systems will have a role to play because, Today, federated learning is a tricky beast because you've got these big models that you're trying to get right. Okay, but if imagine if this was a neurosymbolic AI system that encoded the local information locally and then didn't have to take a lot of the neural information out there, it could be uh, it could provide an advantage to some of these edge compute things. So there is an interplay there, and it'll be interesting to see how that evolves over time.
0: Yep. Yeah. Great. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. So we have two final questions we usually ask all of our guests, just short answers, I guess, but yeah, take it however you would like to. The first of these, we like to ask, what would be a quick win that someone could add to, to make their productionizing of their models more robust?
1: So m- based on my experience, it is solving the know when you don't know problem. So machine learning models, they are trained on a corpus of data. And by definition, they're almost uh, forced to remain within uh, um, with, within that data, okay? That means that whenever data comes that doesn't belong in that corpus, they, uh, their performance could be anything. It could be very unreliable and therefore very unrobust. And so you must solve the know-when-you-don't-know problem. So a machine learning model must re- be able to raise its hand and say, I don't know. I, I don't trust me on this one at all. And mm-hmm. so, so what? I, I'll, I'll, so that is the most important problem in my mind to make models robust. And one approach is you can build a confidence model that stands out. So it's like a model watchdog uh, mm-hmm. system that stands out uh, of the system and and is able to say trust the model here, don't trust the model here, trust the model here. So so today this happens uh, sort of incestually, which means that the model itself says whether you should trust it or not. And and that's a problem. Yep, yep. <laughs> so I think okay. that, that is the, yeah.
0: Interesting. And I mean, maybe that's the answer to the next question as well somehow, but what would be one part of putting a model in production that you think should be given more attention by tool makers in, in this space?
1: Yes. <clears throat> I'm very passionate about this. Uh Uh, It has to be that the scientists have a set of automated tools that allow them to deploy straight to production. And these automated tools, they must cover functionality testing, they must cover uh, regression testing, performance testing, and catastrophic forgetting testing. Mm-hmm. which means as you update a model, it can forget its old performance on old data. And, and, and so you must ensure. So if you can if you can automate those four pieces in a way that allow uh, the scientists to train models, it's almost like it's a gate. After they retrain a model and say, yes, this looks really good, let's go to production, you, you've got to remove the engineering bandwidth. Uh, engineers should not be forced to do this kind of TDL tedious task of taking that model and productionizing it it should just go right through engineers should be building the automation to enable these scientists to to be able to take those solutions straight to production
0: just like i guess we're not really programming an assembly or you know yeah anymore.
1: exactly exactly right. exactly so to me yeah that that is the holy grail of uh, of our future and and we need to be able to enable that
0: okay yeah. Great. Well, thank you very much, Mohan, for taking the time.
1: Yeah, thank you for having me, Alex, and it was a pleasure.
0: Thank you for listening to this latest episode of Pipeline Conversations. If you enjoyed what you heard, please consider giving us a review wherever you get your podcasts. It helps us get seen by more people, and of course, it's always nice to receive feedback. If you have suggestions for future guests, please send them over to podcast and zenml.io. Thanks. Until next time.